ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping your world. I'm Russell Moore, Editor-in-Chief at Christianity Today, and with us today, as always, is Mike Cosper, Director of CT Media, and with us, too, is Nicole Martin, CT's Chief Impact Officer. And today, we're going to be talking about the Town Hall Carnival that we saw on CNN this week with former president, maybe future president, Donald Trump, and ask the question, are we really going to do this all over again? And we'll also talk about the killing of Jordan Neely on a New York subway and what that tells us about where American culture is right now on issues of race, criminal justice, public safety, guns, and more. Joining me today for this conversation is my co-host, Dr. Russell Moore. Russ, welcome to The Bulletin. Good to see you, Mike. NCT's Chief Impact Officer, Nicole Martin. Nicole, welcome back to The Bulletin. Thanks, Mike. We are recording on Thursday morning. Last night, we all watched, for better or worse, the Donald Trump Town Hall on CNN. It was hosted by Caitlin Collins. It's kind of hard to even know where to begin to talk about what we all watched last night on CNN. And I think maybe we could even start with the very... Like one of the things that's being discussed online quite a bit this morning is was it irresponsible of CNN to host a town hall like this in the first place and just give Donald Trump a microphone for 70 minutes? Hmm. I have fairly formed opinions about this, but before I dive in, Russell, let me start with you. What is your thinking on the very question of here we have this polarized culture where people live inside their ideological bubbles for the most part. And yet we have this presidential election coming up. Donald Trump is a known liar. He lied a lot. No one was surprised by that. Did CNN make a mistake by bringing him on and providing him platform? Well, he's not just a known liar. He's someone who incites violence regularly. Mm -hmm. So I have mixed feelings as well. On the one hand, giving a platform to this sort of thing, which we'll talk about the details of it later, I'm sure. It kind of reminds us all of 2015, 2016, when, as one person at CBS News said, Donald Trump is bad for the country, but he's great for CBS because the ratings went up so much. People are riveted to this. That's worrying to me. On the other hand, this is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president, very easily could be elected again as president of the United States. How do you not 
showcase and highlight what it is that he's saying. I don't know how you don't do it. I mean, it makes me think of in 2015, Huffington Post decided to no longer cover Donald Trump on the politics page at all and categorize everything with him as entertainment. Well, it was only so long you could do that until they had to reverse it. So I have very mixed feelings. And I was kind of doing air traffic control last night between friends, some of whom were saying this is really irresponsible and others who were saying, no, the country needs to hear this. They need to hear what it is that this person is offering and that it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. I think the sad thing about Donald Trump is that he makes you question the rational moves because of his irrationality. So it is a rational and right thing to create space for the front runner. And I think to Russell's point, the idea that CNN hosted this, it boosted their views, but also I think in a time when things are very deeply polarized, they were trying to show, look, we can give voice to dissenting opinions. Now their show afterward was very clear how they felt about it and where they stood. But I think they were trying to be equitable. But we we know by now when you try to be rational with irrational people, it just makes you look bad. So I'm still kind of grieving and at a loss. The fact that there were people cheering at specific lies and cheering when specific derogatory comments were made grieved my heart because this was a reminder that whether there is Donald Trump at the front or not, this idea still persists and it's growing. I told Nicole this morning that if she's grieving, I'm volcanically angry uh, <laughs> after watching this. I, I was literally in a prayer meeting, uh, a group that we, we meet together, a book club kind of. We were having a time of prayer for one of us who's going through a rough time. And I started getting texts from I don't know how many people saying, did you hear what was just said about January 6th? <laughs> oh and then when I saw this, I mean, I am really two steps from Mark Driscoll on the opening of your show, Mike, <laughs> uh, that angry at what I saw. And we can talk about why Yeah, as we go. Yeah. Yes. So I would count myself as somewhere in the zone where I feel like it's important for people to have to listen to this to a certain extent. That mm -hmm. there is something about a media environment where you're never confronted by the man in full, right? That I think is important. I mean, even when you think about Trump and when you think about his allies, you think about the networks that support him and that want to push him forward. There's certain areas they're going to push. There's certain things they're going to cover. They're not going to talk a whole lot about January 6th. They're not going to talk a whole lot about E. Jean Carroll. They're not going to talk about some of these difficult subjects that are difficult for Trump and that he's bad on. Because he always doubles down on the narratives that hurt him and hurt the party. Mm -hmm. So the fact that CNN hosted him, pressed those issues, and the fact that you saw a Donald Trump who the, – the conventional wisdom from Republican you know, consultants and operatives, if you're reading what they're talking about, what should Trump do to win the next election? He should talk about Biden. He should talk about the border. He should talk about age. He should talk about inflation. He should talk about all these things. What did Donald Trump want to talk about last night? January 6th, <laughs> stolen election conspiracy theories, E. Jean Carroll, nasty women. All of the things that are bad for Trump were the things that he wanted to talk about the entire night. And so I think it is a weird way of saying like this is the case for platforming people you don't agree with because it's the classic case of like here's a little more rope, Mr. President. Would you like to talk some more? <laughs> I will say I do think one of the things that was different about – the way he was treated last night than the way he has been treated in the past, particularly when I think about 2015, 2016, when he was this sort of 
weird sort of carnival act that had come out of nowhere. Like no one was ever taking him that seriously. And he was showing up on morning Joe, you know, three or four mornings a week. And everybody's kind of laughing and going, Don, you're just, you're Donnie from Queens. He's crazy. He says these crazy things. And it's kind of laughed off by the host as well as, as by the audience. That's where I think Caitlin Collins deserves a lot of credit because there's no way to keep up with the fire hose of Trump because his energy is just different. His presence is different and all the rest of it. Yep. So as well as any human being who doesn't share his pathology can, she did keep up with it and she mm-hmm. did fact check in the moment. And I thought she did an admirable job of just consistently and being unflappable in saying, nope, 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 actually, no, no, actually, no. I mean, that had to be a very exhausting 70 minutes for Caitlin Collins. So, Yeah, as a nasty woman. I, I realized <laughs> as that was happening, I think, I might be wrong, but I think that I'm the only man in a group of women <laughs> that Trump has called nasty seven years ago <laughs> this week. So I Kudos just count myself you, as a brother Kudos to the to sisterhood. And, and, and for listeners who, who may not have, have paid attention last night, Russell Moore was not calling Caitlin Collins nasty. No, he was referencing no. the fact no. that Donald Trump called her nasty last night. Well, let's talk about a couple of the subjects in the particular that did come up from last night. The subject of January 6th came up, and it came up several times throughout the night. You know, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is one of the things where when Republicans are talking positively about January 6th, they're losing. And so consultants are always saying, get them away from that. Talk about other things. When January 6th came up last night, this is what Donald Trump had to say about it. January 6th had to do with the fact that hundreds of thousands of people, and you don't see the pictures very often. A lot of the people here probably were there. January 6th, it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken to. That was prior to the walk down to the Capitol building. I don't think, and I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people. I've never spoken to a crowd as large as this. And that was because they thought the election was rigged. And they were there proud. They were there with love in their heart. That was an unbelievable, and it was a beautiful day. Where would we like to even start with? I mean, would we want to start with with the idea that January 6th was the largest crowd that he's ever spoken with, which is simply untrue to begin with. But even if it's true. But even if if it's true, yeah. You have a mob that attacked the United Mm -hmm. States Capitol in order to overturn the constitutional democratic uh, process, attacking police officers, smashing through windows. And what you're going to say about that is it was a big crowd. The levels of narcissistic delusion there are beyond what even what we have come to expect. I mean, it, it's amazing okay. that we can still be shocked by this stuff, but I genuinely am. And to say that these people had love in their hearts and to glorify mm. this, and not only to glorify it, but in the week after Proud Boys are convicted of seditious conspiracy, to say, I'm probably going to pardon the January 6th insurrectionists. I mean, those of us who stood against this from the beginning, if we had said, we're going to end up with this person found guilty by a jury of sexual assault, praising the overturning of the Constitution and democratic order, praising violence against police officers and Mm -hmm. his supporters, including evangelical leaders, some of whom taught the rest of us what a Christian worldview was and what moral objectivity is, would say nothing. 
people would have said, you're deranged. I mean, they said it anyway, but they, they, they would have said that that is just an absolutely absurd sort of characterization. And nobody would let that happen. The guardrails are in place. That won't happen. Well, it has. And everyone is fine with it. You have that audience clapping and okay. laughing through all of this about the darkest day in the United States since the Civil War. Mm. It's maddening. And the thing, again, that grieves me most is this is not just Trump's view. If he were just one crazy person, we could just figure out what to do. But my challenge is I go back to my personal trauma of 2016, which was talking to so many sound Christians who were like, oh, absolutely not. I could never do that. I could never vote for him. But they did. And after hearing this, there are some who still will. That's why I grieve. I'm like, how can you hear that? How can you, how can you hear this? Be exposed to this backwards, wrong thinking and still say, yeah, but at least he'll get us someone in the Supreme Court. And people who would say before, oh, well, it's a binary choice. We're having to choose simply between mm -hmm. him and Hillary Clinton. Well, it's not a binary choice right now. And you're saying nothing, including right. people who can pontificate on everything, but <laughs> yeah. suddenly are completely silent when it comes to an assault on American democracy and yeah. an assault on the witness of the church. I always thought when it came to the binary choice argument, Alan Jacobs had the best response. He said, if somebody's, you know, walked me into a voting booth and said, you know, put a gun to my head and said, you have to choose what say ye, my response would be goodbye, cruel world. <laughs> <laughs> Alan's the best. And point being, there's never such thing as a binary choice in a situation like ours. Mm -hmm. I think part of what fascinates me about it, though, just to go back for a second, is that, like you said, like the crowd size is the smallest thing to be lying about. And yeah. yet he lies about that, too. It's yeah. like it's such an avalanche mm -hmm. of lies. It's such an avalanche of self-aggrandizing nonsense, yes. that to me is like the spectacle to behold. You know, we were talking about something unrelated earlier this week, Russell, you and I were texting about AI and just this mm -hmm. phenomenon that when people are just so used to lies, when mm -hmm. people are just accustomed to the fact that what's coming at them, whether it's, you know, a deep fake thing on, on social media or it's just politicians that are just telling them things that are just patently untrue, there comes a point where the case for truth or falsehood of anything doesn't doesn't really matter anymore. At that point, it's like, well, I don't care who's telling the truth or whatever. What's in it for me at this point? Yeah. The character of the person doesn't matter. The facts don't matter. The outcomes, right. the impact on others don't matter. What's in it for me? I'm going to make my judgments based on those calls. Part of this is because the sociopathy and the shamelessness actually are the superpower here. Mm. Because any normal, even mildly psychologically adjusted person would be in a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. My supporters did this after I told them it's time to fight or even just a day after having a jury conclude that it was proven that one had committed sexual assault, there would be a sense of shame about it. Certainly not a joking and a casting blame upon the woman and doing this sort of trying to trying to portray her as, as promiscuous and so forth. There would be a sense of shame and humiliation at that. But when there is 
utter shamelessness, I think yeah. what Donald Trump has proven, and I think we've seen this proven in some church contexts as well, that eventually people will say, well, if he's not ashamed of it, there must not be anything to be ashamed of. Well, yeah. uh, maybe that's true if there's not a God, if there's not an objective <laughs> moral order. But if there is, then shame on us. For context there, let's kind of bring that into the conversation as well, because the town hall took place on Wednesday. On Tuesday, this jury verdict came back in a civil suit that was brought against Donald Trump by a woman named E. Jean Carroll. She was a longtime sex and advice columnist for Elle magazine. She had made an allegation. She had written in 2019 about an incident in which he had raped her in a dressing room at a Bergdorf Goodman sometime in the 1990s. When this came out, Trump denied it. He called her a liar. He called her all kinds of cruel names. Later on, she ends up suing for the slander itself and for a, a civil lawsuit, a civil allegation of rape and assault. Trump refused to testify in the case. He refused to show up in the case. He did appear in a deposition that is remarkably awful to watch. He's full of contempt the entire time. While he's being asked about her, he insists that she was not his type, as though his type weighs into whether or not sexual assault was on the table. Mm. That always baffles me. His response to, did you sexually assault this woman was not, no, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. His response is, oh, she's not my type. Yeah. And in the deposition, he also goes, oh, and by the way, you're not my type either to the lawyer who's <laughs> questioning him. Then, of course, in that same deposition, he's shown a picture of her and said, now, who is this? And he responds, oh, that's Marla, meaning Marla Maples, a woman he ha did have an affair with. But actually, he's pointing out Eugene Carroll and mistaking her for Marla Maples, a woman who was his type. Had an affair with and married. Had an affair with mm -hmm. and married, mm -hmm. bragged about so that it became front page, a front page story in, in the New York Post. So that civil suit went to judgment earlier this week and on Tuesday it came back, found in favor of Carroll, and they awarded $5 million in damages to Carroll. I believe we have a clip of him talking about this story. I never met this woman. I never saw this woman. This woman said, I met her at the front door of Bergdorf Goodman, which I rarely go into other than for a couple of charities. I met her in the front door. She was about 60 years old, and this is like 22, 23 years ago. I met her in the front door of Bergdorf Goodman. I was immediately attracted to her, and she was immediately attracted to me. And we had this great chemistry. We're walking into a crowded department, so we had this great chemistry, and a few minutes later, we end up in a, a room, a dressing room, of Bergdorf Goodman, right near the cash register. And then she found out there were locks on the door, so she said, I found one that was open. She found one. She learned this at trial. She found one that was open. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings them up, and within minutes, you're playing hanky-panky in a dressing room, okay? <laughs> I don't know if he was, he was married then or not. John Johnson, I feel sorry for you, John but Johnson. Mr. President, can I... He's literally lost a civil suit the day before for slandering this woman. And in primetime television the next night, this is his response yet again. Just to be clear, he's mocking her account, of course, saying, oh, of course this could never happen. Of course this could never happen. And yet we have so many other accounts by him on the record of these kinds of encounters with women. We have the infamous Access Hollywood tape where he says this sort of thing can happen. Women let you do this because you're famous. And that's what was really important last night is that he said – at one point, just a few days after the deposition video comes out of this callous, well, mm -hmm. of course, this is the way it's been for millions of years. If you're a star, they'll let you do it. 
unfortunately or fortunately. And Mm. then last night, he does the same thing, doubles down defending those comments in Access Hollywood in a time when we have, I think, 26 women who have made charges, one of them who had a a court affirm her charges here and give her damages. I mean, I remember when the Access Hollywood tape dropped and saying that this is morally reprehensible, getting a call from a denominational entity head in my denomination screaming at me and slamming down the phone before getting an email from a sweet little elderly lady who used to teach me Sunday school telling me that I was a disgrace and turning around and saying, really? Saying that grabbing women by the genitals because you're a star, that is now what it takes to be outside of the Christian faith? And last night, what we saw is not even the dismissive sort of, oh, locker room talk. I wasn't really talking about anything to, yeah, this is the way it is. It ought to cause us to, if you think of the biblical metaphor of tearing one's clothes Mm -hmm. in lament, that's where it ought to put us, but it won't. And it grieves me, again, going back to that word, the fact that he is so consistent in his degradation of women but he still has women voters. He made a statement in 2016, you know, I could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I'd still have voters. We could almost reframe that and say, I could shoot someone. I could be charged for that. I could go to jail for that. And I'd still have voters. It grieves me that he just kind of just spews it out. It just rolls out the way that he talked about E. Jean Carroll, the way that he just kind of rolls out that Caitlin is a nasty woman and the way that he mansplains her. Do you know what Nara is? You do know what Nara is. She doesn't know. She doesn't understand. And women, they, now maybe this was an intentional part on CNN, but the camera went directly to women standing up and clapping. So my mind goes into, what was your upbringing like? What's your theology? What is your sense of self that you as a woman would stand up and clap when a man talks about raping another woman? It's the same thing for other parts of life. There's this kind of separation. He's not talking about me. He's talking about that loose woman over there. And this is why we see this mirrored in church situations in which sexual abuse survivors, they are the ones who are hounded and shamed, sometimes using lawsuits to intimidate them and every other kind of mechanism. They are the ones who end up bearing this. Is it any wonder? Because something has gone deeply, deeply wrong. with our cultural sense of what's right and our our Mm. sense of standing before the judgment seat of Christ Mm. where everything that is in darkness has been brought to light, except these things aren't even in darkness. These things are brought forward and laughed about and bragged about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the most disturbing aspects of the whole night is the crowd. The the, the clip we just played, the laughing of the crowd, the the cheering of the crowd, the applause of the crowd. And we have one more clip that we'll play because then you contrast the way he speaks to Caitlin Collins, the way he talks about E. Jean Carroll. Contrast that with the way he talks about Ashley Babbitt, this Air Force veteran who assaulted the Capitol on January Mm -hmm. 6th, who was breaching a door that was barricaded to keep the mob away from the House chambers. She's breaching this door. She's climbing through this door. And she was shot after being warned multiple times. Seeing that the gun, being warned that the gun was there, she was shot. This is the way he speaks about her. In that three hours, over 140 officers were injured that day. And a person named Ashley Babbitt was killed. 
Yes. You know what? She was killed, and she shouldn't have been killed. And that thug that killed her, there was no reason to shoot her. At blank range, cold blank range, they shot her. And she was a good person. She was a patriot. One there was no reason. There. To, there was no reason. And he went on television to brag about the fact that he killed her. I have a hard time not connecting the fact that he's using the language of thug with the fact that mm-hmm. Michael Byrd is an African-American man. You know, he makes these comments about him going on television as though he were trying to sort of make a hero of himself. Byrd has talked about the incident and about the trauma of the incident. And I'm yet to hear a Capitol police officer who was there on January 6th patting themselves on the back Mm-mm. about any Mm-mm. of what took place. Yep. It's remarkable that he has, again, everything you would tell Donald Trump as a rational human being not to do as a candidate coming back. Don't talk about January 6th. Don't make saints out of these criminals. He's done every single one of them, including this martyrology around Ashley Babbitt. And an implied threat of violence by bringing in these names and faces of people that he castigates as villains. It's the reason the judge had to say to the jury in the Carroll case, you're free now to say who you are in public, but I wouldn't if I were you. Because Mm -hmm. they've had to consistently say, don't make inciting comments on social media that can lead to violence. And it happens over and over and over again. And you have a police officer here who was not only doing his job but defending his country being castigated as a thug and put in a conspiracy theory while the criminals themselves the domestic terrorists themselves are presented as people who are being treated very unfairly and ought to be pardoned not only can this easily lead to violence against people it already has i mean that's what january 6th was that's the reason why you have problems with people even wanting to volunteer to serve as election officials mm-hmm. for the 2024 election because they've already lived through the kinds of threats of violence that they had for just doing their jobs in 2020. That's what exactly are we doing? Right. Are we exactly really right. going to keep doing this? And we can't miss, and I keep calling them dog whistles because, you know, the dog whistle isn't heard by a human beings, it's heard by dogs. The dog whistles of the racist tropes. He calls protesters thugs. He calls any person of color a thug. And then he says, and Biden held his files in Chinatown and they don't even speak English there. I mean, it's the dog whistle of the same kind of language. When he said that, I was taken immediately back to the China virus and to the the assaults against Asian Americans because of seemingly dismissive comments that Trump so easily, so flippantly made to his supporters who are looking for ways to activate their vengeance and really looking for ways to prove their loyalty. So again, going back to the crowd, I'm watching all of these people stand up and clap at the end. And I was thinking they want to be seen by him. They want a flag raised to say, hey, Mr. Trump, look, I support you. And when they enact violence on the people that they think Trump is against, it's like a badge for them. Mr. Trump will be proud of me. President will be proud because I did something that he told me to do. This is exactly what January 6th was about. And once again, the people who are looking at this and cringing are relying on the same sort of magical thinking that they had before. Oh, something will happen and just take care of this, and then we'll move beyond it and move Mm -hmm. back to normal. No. I remember the day, the day that I decided I had to turn off C-SPAN in front of my children. C-SPAN because it was morally inappropriate for them to see in 2015, 2016. You have an entire generation of children for whom 
this is all they've seen. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are, Thursday morning. To date, as far as I'm aware, and I was poking around before we got on the call, other than Chris Christie, I'm yet to see much in the way of Republican denomination, Asa certainly Hutchinson. not in Asa Hutchinson, mm-hmm. but any of the any of the potential 2024 candidates, the bigger names, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, I haven't said anything, Ron DeSantis, we haven't heard anything from. Chris Christie came out and spoke very negatively about not any of the vile, immoral stuff that we've talked about so far, but about Trump's comments about Ukraine, which we Mm. can get to. Trump essentially said, yeah, the whole Russia-Ukrainian war, that'll be over within 24 hours once I'm elected. And of course, no plan. It's just he's going to make a deal. He's going to talk to the one side and then he's going to talk to the other side. And, you know, magically the whole thing's going to be over with. Will we see any of these presidential hopefuls? Will we see a Nikki Haley, a Ron DeSantis, a Tim Scott come right out and say, this is immoral? What he's saying about the election is a lie. These were criminals. Will we hear any of that? In a way, it's even different from the 2015, 2016 playbook because he was spewing nonsense as this fringe conspiracy theorist with a Twitter account. Now he's spewing nonsense as a former president who has done these things, like has brought these things into the world. So it's even more irresponsible. It's even more deeply immoral for political leaders to be silent and go, well, I just don't want to tick off that 33% of the base that's going to vote for him no matter what. And yet the hour is now, you know, the choir is singing, the organ is playing, walk the aisle, this is your moment, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like we're going to see it. And you know, it's sad because you would think, okay, if this is about power, then they should want a piece of this power for themselves and coming against Trump and speaking up against Trump might at least secure a space for them. But they are so consumed with the base. It's almost like a lack mentality. They feel like the Trump base is also their base, so they can't go against Trump. But in so doing, they're basically handing the election to him. I mean, why are you even spending your time, energy, and money running when you will not speak up and you won't defend yourself, your own position, so you might as well just hand it over? And again, this is why I grieve, because we watched last night Trump basically get the complete Republican vote. I mean, complete. No one who speaks against him is willing to actually pull away his base. His base is going to be who they are. They don't recognize that their silence actually speaks volumes. Well, and what they know is that, as uh, Jonathan V. Last over at The Bulwark uh, says often, the problem is the people. The problem is not that there's some system at work that just has a quirk in it. The problem is that something has gone so deeply wrong in American life that they understand that if they simply get up and make a case that would have been obvious to everybody just a few years ago, that they'll be abandoned. So they don't know what to do. So they're paralyzed like deer here. And beyond that, they know that if they come at him, he's going to humiliate, intimidate, mm-hmm. attack. Okay, well, well, you know that already. Why are you running for president or running a political party or being exactly a U.S. Right. senator if that's the case? And how do you not, if you're Kevin Kramer, U.S. senator from North Dakota, hear yourself saying, well, I'd rather have a presidential candidate who's not been found guilty of sexual assault. That's not a check in the plus column, but it's not disqualifying. Who, Mm -hmm. Who can imagine saying that and hearing yourself say those words? It's the same question. It has always been fit or unfit. 
except that there was a time when you could say, well, people just don't know. They're just not paying attention. They just don't see what it is that's really at the heart of this. Well, they do now. Everybody knows what we're dealing with now, and they like it. That's the fundamental problem, and nobody knows how to fix it. And it's because of fear. I mean, fear. If, if you're yeah. if you're coaching Nikki Haley, this is a perfect opportunity. You say, look, you need to go out there and say, women, did you just hear that? I am for you. He is not. I mean, this is like the perfect opportunity. But they are so afraid of being humiliated by Trump. They're so afraid of losing that portion of their base that they feel like, well, I'll just avoid the question. What in the world is that debate going to look like? Like, Yeah. And and the irony is the people who end up humiliated are the people who stand with him. Yes. Uh, because you, you end up, there is no amount of loyalty that is ever enough, which is why you That's look it. at one cabinet member after another who is castigated as incompetent and disloyal and everything else. And you have people in an administration. I was just talking to a former Trump administration official the other day who was saying every day I would go into my office and cry Mm. because I was afraid of what was going to happen with the nuclear codes. Uh, I mean, Mm. that's where the humiliation ultimately comes. And there does come a point where a person has to say, my integrity matters enough mm-hmm. and my country matters enough. And then for those of us who are Christians, the witness that we have to an actual objective moral order ought to matter enough that who cares if you're humiliated and intimidated and knocked down? You have to do something. You have to say something. I thought about this earlier this week. I was listening to another podcast, a show called The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Oh, yeah. Love that show. He had a guest on this week, a guy named Paul Heyman. Paul is a wrestling promoter in the WWE. And I don't follow wrestling closely. I'm I'm aware of it. My brother is actually a biographer of famous historic pro wrestlers. So it's in the family. Oh, yeah. He's written like a half a dozen great books on the the subject. But but anyway, I listened to this interview. I, I listened to just about anything Brian does. And they talk about this thing that happened about three months ago in the WWE. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is our political moment. Basically, to make a very long story short, obviously, WWE, it's a sport, but it's a dramatized sport, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's it's performative. They had created a situation where you have the reigning champ, right? And then you have these contenders that are coming up through the ranks. Part of the art of pro wrestling is that you have to kind of control the narrative of the different characters inside the organization so that when you say, and then this summer at SummerSlam, this guy and that guy are going to get in the ring, it's the one everybody's dying for. Well, they'd found themselves in this situation about three, four months ago where Cody Rhodes was supposed to get his shot. This is Dusty Rhodes' son. He's supposed to get his shot at the belt, but there was this other up-and-comer, and he'd kind of won everybody's hearts. The guy has the boat. I think his name is Roman Reigns. I think it's the actual guy. Anyway, like I said, this is not my world, but this is this is the point. They came to this moment where they said, we have to change this story. We have to change this narrative. If we just keep marching the way we are, we're going to give Cody Rhodes the shot in the summer, and nobody's going to want that. Paul Heyman is the reigning champs manager. They end up creating this situation where at the end of one of these fights, he's in the ring talking to Cody Rhodes, who's there making his case for why he wants the belt. The entire fortune of WWE is on their shoulders for the rest of this year Hmm. because what they have to do is they have to walk into that ring knowing nobody wants to see Cody fight this summer and they have to leave and everybody wanting to see Cody fight this summer. 
mm-hmm. wrestle this summer. Mm-hmm. And they do it. He gets in, he tells the story, he pays tribute to Paul. You're the guy that loved my dad. You know, you brought my dad back. You took our family from, you know, everybody had forgotten about us, and you brought Dusty Rhodes back into the ring. You gave him his respect, you gave him his love, you know, whatever. I mean, it's powerful to watch as a piece of soap opera because Paul Heyman is kind of weeping and, you know, it's this very genuine moment and the crowd is yelling, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> then Paul starts talking back and, and talking about Cody. And then at, towards the end, he's like, I know that you know that your father loved you. What you don't know is that you were the son he loved the most, but Roman Reigns was the son he never had, you know? Mm-hmm. And so instantly the whole thing changes. And the whole place is ready to just burn down because now they want – well, they want Cody to just kill Paul right there in the ring, which they're not going to get. And it did it. It pivoted the whole story of WWE for the year and it set up whatever. Long setup to say this. Those two guys walked into that ring with a story that was already Mm -hmm. set and it was in the mind of the mob. And they had to change the minds of the mob by telling a different kind of story. That to me as a piece of drama is a – beautiful metaphor for the way life really works. Why do we love that crap? Why do people love soap operas? Why do people love the weigh-ins for boxing matches and everything else where people stand face to face and they do the interviews and all the rest of it? Because we want that kind of human drama. Politics has always worked this way. Mm. It's always lived and died by people getting up and being able to tell a story about who are we and where are we going. And what Trump did is he got up and told a story that resonated. And unfortunately, it resonated with the worst of us. Mm. And it resonated in a way that gave people something to sink their teeth into. No one has the courage to stick their neck out there in that same way and say, I'm going to tell a better story. I'm Mm. going to appeal, you know, Lincoln's language. I'm going to appeal to the better angels of our nature because they're so scared. And that to me is the tragedy of the moment because it's totally possible. It's absolutely possible. We live and die by stories. We live and die by speech. We live and die by words. That's what politics are for. To me, if you're a politician, if you want to be something as a politician, if you want to make your name for yourself as a politician, make your mark as a conservative politician in American history, this is absolutely your moment. We're dying for the Reagan, the Lincoln, the whomever who can get up and tell a better story and steer the conservative movement or the evangelical movement away from this kind of poisonous stuff. Because look, Trump might win in 2024, but everything about the demographic numbers in the United States, everything is pushing against that. If he's going to win, he's going to win with a narrow window on the electoral college. He's not going to win with the popular vote. That's clear. That tide is against you. So why cling on and think, man, let's just hang on for a few more years and try to ride this thing out rather than do something that could actually turn a tide in a way that has a long-term 5, 10, 12, 20-year impact. And it's the lack of courage. It's uh, Maurice Sendak, where the wild things are. The way you back that down is by looking it in the eyes. Exactly. Not by cringing. That's right. And Mike, to your point, how will Trump win? It will not be because of his strength. It will not be because of his political track record. It will be because he has learned to be a master manipulator of the crowd. And he manipulates the crowd with fear. The statements, our country is being destroyed. The statements, they are coming for your jobs. The statements, you are unprotected. He digs into the humane fears that all of us have. And he's digging into a specific type of fear. He's digging into middle-class white fear. 
So if you are afraid of them stealing your jobs, be afraid because there's evidence that they will. If you are afraid of the browning of America, be afraid because I assure you it's happening under our noses. This is his speech before he gets in the ring. It's, and then he gets all the people around him to kind of, you know, weigh in. He's right. Look at the opponent. You should be afraid. You are unprotected. But it's not anything other than manipulation based on a fear tactic. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can combat fear is with another image, prayerfully one that is of hope. And this is your annual reminder that Donald Trump was an entertainer with the WWE (laughs) for many years. So that's right. All right. On that note, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So for the past couple of weeks in New York City, there have been protests on the streets. There's been a lot of activity and protests online as well. In the aftermath of the death of a man by the name of Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely was a homeless man who was well-known around the Times Square area of New York City as as a Michael Jackson impersonator. Neely had a fairly extensive criminal record as well. And this is somebody who very clearly was suffering from some mental illness, had been through a variety of family-related traumas in the last number of years. Something took place on the subway. He came in to a subway car. He was clearly agitated. The specific details are still somewhat fuzzy in terms of exactly what happened. 
What's not fuzzy is that at some point, several members of the car began to subdue him. One in particular, a guy named Daniel Penny, put him in a chokehold, a fairly technical-looking chokehold. Daniel Penny is a retired Marine. And so very clearly, this is somebody who's had training in this kind of stuff. He places him in this chokehold and nearly lost consciousness and then ultimately died from the injuries. So this has been variously framed as a story of vigilantism, as a story a story that's primarily about race. It's a media story because here we are again where we're looking at the death of an individual being broadcast on social media without context, without any additional information. You have political tribes aligning in various ways, talking about it where – Many of the same people, for instance, who, who came out as big supporters of Kyle Rittenhouse are now coming out and framing Daniel Penny as sort of the subway hero version of that. And yet you also have people saying, look, this is, this is a very complicated situation. This is somebody who was mentally unwell. You know, the New York City subway, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you as well. Like we've all had strange, violent experiences at times in the New York City subway. And when you're in a subway car – between stops and somebody starts getting weird or violent or threatening or scary, it's a very, very intense thing. So I think a lot of Christians are trying to know exactly what to make of it, particularly when, as so often happens, the story has become polarized and politicized so, so clearly around both cultural and racial lines. Nicole, what what do you make of this story? Well, first of all, I think the best thing we can do is to honor the complications of the story. And I would treat this as I would any violent death of a Black person in America as a layer cake. So number one, the top layer has to be the recognition that too many Black individuals in America die for incidents that other people don't have to die for because they are Black. So you have to almost start there, whether it is being shot in the back because you stole a pair of sunglasses or being run down because you were in the wrong place in the wrong time or being shot because you looked like someone else. You cannot talk about this without recognizing we do have a problem of bias against black people in general in our country. The next layer has to be more contextual to New York. I mean, I was in New York a few weeks ago, and there is a significant homeless problem. There is a significant problem with homelessness and mental health. There's a significant issue on the subways. My husband was with me, and he said, look, stay close to me because the New York subways are not safe. And if I were in that situation and my husband were with me, he would absolutely try to protect me by any means necessary. So you cannot just say this is all about white vigilantism and black lives. This is also an issue of protection and violence. And the fact that New York does have a very significant issue with violence, a very significant issue with homelessness, and many of those who are homeless on the street, some studies say up to 33% of those who are on the street and without homes, also struggle with some mental health issue. And then you get to the next layer what does healthy restraint look like? Now, I've read reports that said that the Marine did not intend to kill Jordan. And I am a positive person and I want to believe that. He didn't intend to kill him. There are some reports that say that he was held in the chokehold for many minutes. And as we know, you know, the, a chokehold done in the right way can take someone's life in seconds. Is that plausible? Well, perhaps. So I think there is a layer of sympathy for this Marine who was potentially acting in a way to protect himself and others, but you cannot just go there without hitting the first two layers. Complicated. <laughs> 
It is. Russ, when I was thinking about this this morning, I thought about, and this has been brought up in other places as well, but I thought a lot about the story of Bernard Goetz. So Mm -hmm. 1984, Bernard Goetz is on the subway. He's approached by a teenager who asks him for money. Ultimately, three more kids gather with this teenager that are are together. Goetz ends up shooting all four of them. None of them died. Gets, you know, runs away and then is eventually sort of found out that it was him. He turns himself in. It becomes a whole thing. What's interesting to me about the comparison of the two stories is that, you know, if you go back and read letters to the editor and the, the way the story was reported and everything else, for many, many, many people, Getz was seen as this sort of folk hero. As bad as New York might be today compared to how it was four mm-hmm. or five years ago, mm-hmm. it is still nothing like New York right, 1984. Yeah. That's right. A much, much more violent place. Yeah. Getz himself had been assaulted fairly violently in 1981. He began carrying a gun because of that assault. So this is a very crime-ridden place. The subway was a much scarier place. And so in that instance, the story comes out, You know, guys confronted by four kids on the subway demanding money. He shoots them. He gets away. That's the way the story gets presented in the media. So people then come around and they embrace Getz. It's interesting to me as a comparison because the Neely story comes at us from a completely different direction with a completely different sequence of details. Because the first detail most people see is the image of Neely being choked out on the floor. The next image most people see is the image of Neely as the Michael Jackson impersonator. Mm -hmm. And then – Slowly but surely, some of the other sort of details fall in place. I don't think the comparison helps us in any way to render a verdict on what's happening now, except to point out the fact that the way information comes to us, the way media works, and the way social media in particular has transformed the way we encounter these kinds of stories and these kinds of incidents has a profound effect on the moral imagination. Because I think it incentivizes the kind of tribal polarizing that you see in this case. I also think it's interesting because if you wanted to know what was going on in the Bernie Getz case, you had to go to the New York Times day Mm -hmm. by day or the New York Post day by day or the Daily News or whatever. It was playing out in the tabloids in those kinds of ways and it had this kind of slow roll where a story like this, it's minute by minute, it's hour by hour. There's lots of false information. There's already deep fakes out about this Mm -hmm. stuff. So to me, it also raises this larger question of what does it mean to be a discerning Christian when – these kinds of things are happening when our neighbors are upset and brokenhearted and when there's the loss of a life to grieve. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is recognizing that in we're not dealing just with this story. What's happening is people are reacting to 30 or 40 other right. stories that are in the background. So it's kind of like uh, in a church conflict situation when somebody says, well, our argument is over whether or not to build more education space. Almost never is that what the argument's about. It's instead about all of these underlying issues right. that come to the forefront. So when you look at this, we're immediately looking at a racial justice question because there's the echo in the background, rightly or wrongly, but there's that echo of Eric Garner and George Floyd and others. We're also looking at a situation where there's a breakdown in public order in terms of crime. So there is this sense of fear that can easily lead to overreaction. 
And Elizabeth Breenig has a great piece in The Atlantic about the connection of this story to the gun debate, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why things are at such a tense level right now is because no one knows when something is going to devolve into a mass shooting. And when you have a situation where in some other cases, if a homeless person is saying something along the lines of, I don't have anything to lose, I don't care if I live or die, people might be able to overlook that. When you put that in the context of a really chaotic sort of American life when it comes to shooting, that ratchets the temperature way up. And then you add to that what Nicole mentioned with the mental health crisis and the way that it seems we have overreacted to over-institutionalization, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, nurse ratchet sort of uh, stuff. And so we've overreacted to that in a way in which there are people in genuine mental health crises who have no help and are Mm -hmm. simply turned out into the world with case after case after case of really, really awful things happening. And so it's all of this at Mm -hmm. the same time. And I think there was a comment from, uh, was it Joy uh, Behar on The View, that she said something along the lines, if if Jordan Neely had had a gun, then that would have been different. Why are you conflicting? All of this is in the atmosphere. We're still grieving the fact that yet another mass murder has happened. And there was a note that related to racial issues and related to you know the kinds of tropes that we just heard Trump say. And you're going to make a statement about bringing guns into a situation that is so fraught with so many other issues? I mean, the question is, how should Christians respond to this? I've been criticized already for leading with compassion. But if we don't lead with some type of compassionate understanding of what is already in the grounds, then we can mistake what's growing from the ground as just, you know, what it is. No, no, you have to look at what's in the ground, what's in the soil, and then you can assess what to do with the tree or the root that's growing there. Hmm. I do think one of the things that's disturbing about this instance to me is the Rittenhouse comparison. Yeah. Because the Rittenhouse thing was also, in the Kyle Rittenhouse situation, you had somebody who was completely irresponsible, making a essentially vigilante decision, putting themselves and others in an extraordinary amount of danger, inviting violence upon himself, and then killing someone and you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was self-defense. I don't know the details of the case. Killing someone because he felt threatened and playing the victim on the backside of it That's and right. becoming a hero yeah. on the backside of it, right? So you have this bizarre story arc of making a hero out of somebody who's just wildly, wildly irresponsible. Yes. And I can't help but feel like the same thing is beginning to take shape around Daniel Penny. Again, mm. we situation could be entirely different. It seems like it's very different on a lot of different levels. But there is this assumption of guilt on the part of Neely and assumption of heroism on the part of Penny. Mm. And to me, what it does is it allows people to sort of flatten a narrative, Mm -hmm. stop thinking, and simply go, okay, well, so we have a hero and a villain, and the hero did the good thing, and the villain did the bad thing, judge, jury, we anoint him the executioner post hoc and everything's fine now. It just strikes me as like yet one more example of the ways in which, again, not to use the word incentive too much today, but like the incentives here are it makes it so much easier 
to deal with difficult political situations if mm-hmm. I have a tribe that I'm just always going to agree with no matter what. That's right. This is difficult. What's the easiest thing to do? The easiest thing to do is to sort of split the category. This is a lynching, as some people have put it. Oh, this was just a lynching. This is just purely about race. Or this is purely a story about crime. This guy's a hero. We're going to amplify this guy up. And I feel like the tension and an important tension for Christians who want to have faithful witness, who care about truth, is to sit in the middle of this and go, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and part of that is because there was a really great article in, I think, National Affairs not long ago talking about the way that these ideological tribes can become an outsourcing of thinking. Mm-hmm. You don't have to think. So you don't have to evaluate and say, I don't know. I'm going to, to really watch what happened here if all you have to ask is, well, whose team am I a part of? And that means they've already exactly. done the thinking for me. And I just have to say, they're right. And a lot of that, I mean, I think you're right that this is not Kyle Rittenhouse now. And a lot of whether it will be is going to depend on Penny. And we don't know him. Mm -hmm. If he's somebody who says, I'm anguished about this, I didn't feel like I had any other choice, then he's not going to be out on the circuit trying to make a living out of this and to claim heroism. He's not going to do that. So I think we'll really have to see. That's right. I would caveat the Christian response of, I don't know. I think the Christian response isn't just, I don't know, we'll see, but also, I know what the history of American violence and crime has already been. I know the injustice that has already happened. I know that Black men in particular are more prone to die for things that other people would be arrested for. I know that. And now that I turn my eyes toward this situation, there are complexities that I don't know. That, Mm -hmm. I think, is the caveat. Because if you go straight in with, I just don't know. I remember talking to people, you know, about that. And even in the case of George Floyd, they were like, well, you just never know. I mean, he was breaking law. But why do black people have to die for breaking the law? You don't have to worry about dying for breaking the law. I have to worry about that. So there is a sense of going in with a clear-eyed view of history and going in with an open hand toward the present. In Mm -hmm. this present situation, there are too many complexities. And no, I refuse to say that this was just about race or it was just about heroism. This was actually about a lot more. Absolutely. I agree. I think to me what I would hope Christians can do is encounter these situations, not casting aside any of – like I'm not suggesting that we would cast aside any of the historical Mm -hmm. background or knowledge or anything like that. And I'm certainly not suggesting that our posture, a permanent yeah, posture yeah. is, I don't know. Yeah. The posture, though, is one of humility that says, I'm not just going to reflexively agree with my yes. tribe. You know, I'm not going to look for a group to join when this thing aligns, particularly looking for a group that affirms other priors that I have about That's right. who we are as a country or who we aren't or whatever the case may be. Like, yeah. I think there's an urgency that Christians need to make their judgments. Like, mm-hmm. we need to make wise, discerning judgments about here's what I think is happening. Here's the moral situation, to the best of my knowledge, from the place where I sit. Yeah. And I think what's troubling to me about the Neely story is because it is so complicated and it is so layered and because there's so much we still don't know in terms of exactly what happened on that car, Mm -hmm. that subway car Mm -hmm. and all of that, that the impulse to make that quick judgment Mm -hmm. is just incredibly destructive. And that's what the Bible classifies as wisdom. So the, the wisdom that Solomon displays, for instance, is not 
and a permanent, I don't know, and who can know these things. Exactly. <laughs> but it is a looking into and being able to see, in the case of Jesus, what is in the hearts of people. And so there's a discernment that comes with that and a wisdom. And that's what's really needed. And also to say, sometimes we're in a culture where all of the either ors are torn apart. And so you end up with, well, because we have criminals, that means that this uh, mass problem of killing black men particularly is not an issue. Or you end up with, well, the police are always the problem, defund the police. Mm -hmm. Which leads to more of this. I mean, what we need is strongly trained, aware, and bounded by justice police officers. And we need to deal with the structures and systems that are oppressive, both of those things. And it's just easier to say, choose one. All right. Well, heavy stuff for us this week. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> only got to cover two topics, but there's enough in both of those to fill an entire show. Let's just hope that next week, what we're what we're having to talk about is everyone's talking about the clown shortage at circuses <laughs> or, uh, or or something happy Or the like abundance that. of flowers yeah. and how just the yeah. earth is filled with joyful now, colors. <laughs> now that I think of it, we have no shortage of clowns. So I, I, I think we kind of circle no, back right around. Oh, that was a setup. That was a setup. <laughs> That's good. I really loved the Showtime show Homeland starring Claire mm -hmm. Danes. Mm. But, you know, Claire on the show, she's a single mom and and she she battles mental illness and all this kind of stuff. And the the whole plot of the show is always her kind of going right up to the brink of just complete mental and emotional breakdown in order to get to the place where she can, you know, unmask some plot to carry out terrorist attacks in the United States. And I used to always say, like, I was just dreaming of, like, the final season being one where she just has, like, a really nice spring with her daughter. You know, like, episode one, Carrie bakes That's cupcakes. Great. Episode two, That's Carrie and great. her daughter go to the park. You know, maybe next week we can do uh, That the reminds me of cupcakes. the woman I heard uh, being interviewed one time who would always watch The Sound of Music every year with her parents. But because of her bedtime, she only saw the first hour. And so she <laughs> thought it was just this feel-good kind of movie. And she grew up and watched the the whole thing and said, where did the Nazis come from? <laughs> this has gotten dark. Oh, and now we have the title for the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Russell and Nicole, we'll see you next week. Thank, Thank you all for you. listening. We'll see you then. Bye. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now 
at morect.com equip.